0: Hello and welcome aboard the Gallant Says Podcast. I am Paul Gallant on this Tuesday, November 23rd of 2021. This podcast is available to you on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review, and tell a friend about the podcast. If you want to get in touch with the show, Galant says at gmail.com is how you email in. Or you can call in, too. Leave a voicemail the old-fashioned way. We'll play it on the podcast. 781-452-4322. Again, 781-452-4322. You might see that I'm wearing a Houston Oilers t-shirt right now. Suck on that, Tennessee Titans. You losers. Oh, the Titans are the best team in the AFC. I knew there was a very good chance that y'all would follow up a good performance against multiple good teams in a row with a pants poopage like that. You frauds. All of you fans in Tennessee, you guys think that that team's great. I can't wait to see what happens to y'all against the New England Patriots on Sunday. I cannot wait. I am licking my chops to see more Ryan Tannehill action like that. So shout out to those Houston Texans who were actually somehow able to get a win and to all my H-Town listeners out there. Because it should be the Houston Oilers, not the Houston Texans. And the Titans stole it from us. Over the course of today's episode, we're going to dive into a really bad Seahawks loss and perhaps the end of an era with Jackson Bevins. I'm going to play a couple of really depressing quotes for you coming out of the Seahawks' loss to the Cardinals. We'll also talk about sports daddies, seeing as Colt McCoy is Seattle's sports daddy. Good God, this is depressing. And at the end of the podcast, I'm going to dive into something very serious. It's the reason that the podcast is out so late on this Tuesday. I put a ton of prep into it. I wanted to make sure that I got all of my facts and details correct. I hope that you'll stick with me for it. It's a bit of a controversial subject. Let's go a radio show host in Seattle called Paul Gallant. I was just kind of curious what Paul gets to say. You are definitely living in the
1: hindsight world today, Paul. You're the f-ing girl, mother f- are you kidding me? Paul Gallant, what the hell is wrong with you? You tell me. Who is your daddy and what does he do?
0: There are few things more frustrating for a sports fan than continuously seeing your team get its ass kicked by the same player year in, year out, or the same team year in, year out. And unfortunately, Seattle experienced the rock-bottom version of that on Sunday when, yet again, they lost to not Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or one of the best quarterbacks in the game, or even an average quarterback. Like a Matt Stafford. They lost to a backup quarterback, Colt McCoy, again. They lost to him first in 2011 in one of the ugliest games we've ever seen. Colt McCoy then with the Cleveland Browns beat the Seahawks 6-3. We saw it last year when Russell Wilson and the Seahawks offense forgot how to work when Colt McCoy subbing for an injured Daniel Jones in the New York Giants took down the Seahawks in a game that I think, spelled the beginning of the end for the Seahawks season. And then on Sunday, Colt McCoy, backup quarterback of the Arizona Cardinals, now 9-2, and two, was awesome. Subbing in for an injured Kyler Murray. He is 3-0 and against the Seahawks. I know a lot of you right now are hearing this and you're thinking that I'm here to pile on. Some people couldn't handle when I posted about Colt McCoy being... Seattle's daddy, online. Jared Pandrea tweeted at me, you big mad you don't work at 710 ESPN Seattle anymore, huh? All negativity from your mouth all day long. No wonder. Uh, Tim Anderson, on my Instagram, at Sports Galant, commented, not fucking now, Paul. Harkin Spencer, meanwhile, just unfollowed me on Sports Galant, saying... Goodbye. But I'm not here to rub things in, even though all of you guys are essentially acting like this guy. Not, 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 not my real dad. Colt McCoy's not my real dad. Well, he is. He is your real dad. He owns you. But look, I'm, I'm not piling on here. Sports daddies are a shared experience across fan bases in sports. You want an example from me? I've seen a couple of them. In Houston, while covering the Houston Texans, I watched Colts wide receiver T.Y. Hilton terrorize the Texans. In 19 games against Houston, he has 101 catches for 1,798 yards and 11 touchdowns. In fact, he once called NRG Stadium his second home leading up to a 2019 Houston-Indianapolis playoff game, which the Colts, I believe, ended up winning 21-7. And Hilton made a bunch of key catches down the stretch in that game. Uh, Before the game, after Jonathan Joseph had called him a clown for saying that NRG Stadium is his second home, Hilton wore the mask from it to said game. It was extremely well played, seeing as it. Pennywise the clown is the most terrifying clown out there. And then he delivered. And I'm not even going to talk about my favorite team's daddy. The Patriots lost two Super Bowls to Eli fucking Manning. Eli Manning. Not a Hall of Fame quarterback. That's something I'll have to live with for the rest of my life. This is a shared experience across all sports. Hell, for the longest time, my favorite baseball player ever, Pedro Martinez, he could not do anything against the New York Yankees. This is about two weeks before the Red Sox had their improbable comeback in the American League Championship Series against the New York Yankees. Pedro Martinez. I mean, what can I say? Just tip my heart and, and call the Yankees my daddies. Self-deprecating there led to a bunch of chants in the Bronx, who's your daddy, bat, going forward. But we've all seen this before. The problem is it's just embarrassing when Colt McCoy is your daddy. If we were to classify dads, we got daddy gangs. Not like the Call Her Daddy podcast. In Seattle right now, the Rams are a daddy gang. The Astros are a daddy gang. In Houston, it was the Golden State Warriors. To a lesser extent, it is still the Indianapolis Colts. You could also make the argument that Jack Easterby and Cal McNair are your daddy. And that they are ruining your fan experience. You've also got Zeus daddies. I mean, as some commented, Braden Sim offered the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, I mean, the Rockets put up a really good fight against Golden State, all things considered, during the James Harden era. And of course, they have that one game where they miss all those three-point shots in a row in the middle of Game 7, which I witnessed firsthand. But otherwise, Golden State always owned them. But Golden State owned everybody. How many fan bases feel that Tom Brady has been persecuting them for their entire lives? I'm sure Buffalo Bills fans feel that way. Uh, Shiraz Sultan, a guy who plays flag football with me, said that Larry Fitzgerald always killed the Eagles. Larry Fitzgerald's one of the best wide receivers to ever play the game. Uh, Tate Stiles brought up Kellen Moore, putting 69 points on him in high school in 2006. I guess this took place at Lumen Field. We've also got guys who are, I would say, Forgettable years down the road, but are your average daddies? I am James, brought up to Mutombo. Matumbo. Uh, for those who weren't alive or maybe not sports conscious, in 1994, Matumbo and the Denver Nuggets were an eight seed down 0-2 to the Seattle Sonics, who had the best record in basketball that year. They became the first ever eight seed to upset a one seed in Dikembe Matumbo. There's a famous picture of him on the court lying down with his hands. In his head, he had 8 blocks and 15 rebounds in Game 5. He had 31 block shots in the series. You'll probably see a lot of other Yankee names or remember a bunch of Yankee names as well as far as your average daddies. Tally the Sheba responded to me on Sports Galan on Instagram. Jim Laretz and Paul O'Neill, Rando Yankees. Bernie Williams, to me, was the scariest Yankee of all. You always felt like he was going to deliver a big hit when he went up against you, and he had this just robotic feel to him. I felt like he never showed any emotion. This steely gaze. He scared the shit out of me as a Red Sox fan growing up. Uh, Jacob Does Theater brought up Sean Figgins, who destroyed the Mariners and then destroyed them when he joined them. That's a funny one. So what is a Colt McCoy? What is getting owned by someone like that? Suppose it's sort of being owned by a deadbeat dad. The dad who goes out for cigarettes and never comes back. The dad who doesn't pay child support. It's embarrassing to have Colt McCoy as your daddy. Sadly, that is the reality that we now face as this Seahawks season continues to spiral out of control. This happens all the time! (laughs) All the time! Why? This is when other people get to call in and dump dump on what you said. Oh. Oh.
1: But this is really
0: fun. Speaking of control, it really doesn't feel like Pete Carroll's in control anymore. I didn't want to do that Horatio Kane transition, but... Listen to him before he walked away from his post game press conference on Sunday. It, it's, I'm sorry, it's not, not a different story. Been the same story in and out of this, this whole season, and we've got to see if we can turn this thing. I, I'm, I'm really done. What was your. He doesn't sound calm. He doesn't sound collected. He sounds like a guy who actually has no answers. And by the way, how could he have any answers for a 3 and 7 start to the season? It's been a disaster. He walks away from the press conference. 30 minutes later, he comes back. He says that he owes it to the media types who are out there. I'll give him credit for that. I don't know what answers he might have come to over the 30 minutes since then, but in another outfit, here's Pete Carroll's return to the mic. I know that you probably have some more questions. I don't know if I have any more answers for you, but I'll try my ass. Yeah, I'll try it. I don't know what answers Pete Carroll is going to have the rest of the way. And it's hard to feel like he's going to be able to turn this thing around, not just this year, but perhaps next year. That wasn't the worst thing that I heard, though, after the Seahawks lost to the Arizona Cardinals. Russell Wilson's been playing poorly for the last year, at least compared to the standard that we hold him up to. He's injured, at least we think, or he's coming back from an injury. Maybe he's rusty. Maybe that's why he's playing the way that he is. I actually wanted him to make an excuse for himself here. Instead, he gave this answer. You feel like rust has been an issue for you? No, I don't. Um, you know, uh, I don't. I think when you guys see the deep ball, you won't say rust. You know, <laughs> you watch it. The ball is coming out my hand, just fine. I don't. When you see the deep ball, you're not going to be thinking rust. And then he laughs. The guy's addicted to big plays. So this isn't a matter of rust or a guy shaking off a finger injury. This is a guy who with two different offensive coordinators has proven to be completely stoppable when he can't make big plays happen downfield. Why isn't he able to make those plays happen the same way that he used to? Is he not as good at escaping the pocket and extending plays? I think that's a factor. Or is it that he's just addicted to chucking it deep? It's both. The guy can't help himself. They had a major effort this offseason to get the ball out quickly. He had plays available to him over the middle that he could get out quickly. He didn't. I don't want to fucking hear him talk about the deep ball and how good it looks. Who fucking cares if you're not hitting these guys for touchdown passes? You heard this this offseason where he's talking about the plays that he takes sacks on. Yeah, but the big plays I make. And then you're hearing him say, well, when you see me throw the deep ball, when I see you throw the deep ball, I see a quarterback that's not operating the way that this offense needs to that is a massive problem right now that's the last thing i wanted to hear from russell wilson let's talk more about the seahawks and where they currently stand jackson bevins a good friend of mine joined the podcast he is the author of cigar thoughts he is smoking a cigar he is the host of cigar thoughts a podcast which you got to check out This man knows all things Seattle Seahawks. It's Jackson Bevins, my good friend. Jackson, what's going on, buddy?
1: Hey, what's happening, Paul? Thank you for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Anytime. We're both smiling
0: right now, but we are both depressed and sad inside. Jackson, I just looked over to my television a little bit ago. Pardon the interruption was on, and I didn't listen to what they were talking about, but the graphic said, end of an era, question mark, underneath the Seahawks lost to the Colt McCoy led Arizona Cardinals. It's hard to argue against the season being over at this point, barring some sort of miracle, but do you feel like this was the end of an era, a moment in time that we're going to look back at and say, yeah, this is where the run ended.
1: Yeah, I do. Um, And, and, you know, I'm, I'm strangely at peace with it. To have a 10-year run with the same coach and the same quarterback is is really rare. You know, I I bet you could go back through the entire history of the NFL since the merger, and I'd be surprised more than half the franchises have ever had a run like that. And that number is a lot lower in the free agency period. Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll have accomplished an incredible amount together over the last 10 years, and I'm extremely, extremely grateful for it. But it was going to end at some time. I mean, if Belichick and Brady was going to end at some point, then everything else is going to end. And entropy is taking its course right now. And it's, it's a shame. I, I do think though, you know, as, as a Seattle sports fan, we've always rooted for good enough. It's the best we could hope for. I mean, the Sonics won a championship in the seventies. And then that was it. The Mariners have never been to a world series. Uh, the Sonics left town. UW football footballs had, some good years, not this but year. they won a national championship last in the 90s. Seattle had their you know, the Seahawks had their one Super Bowl in 2013, you know, and, and the storm and the sounders have been good and all that. But as far as like being a Seattle sports fan, we've always just been like, Yeah, I hope we're competitive. And then when the Seahawks won that Super Bowl eight years ago, it changed everything. We saw what greatness looked like, and and the expectations shifted and just being good enough was no longer good enough. And for the last three years, it's, it's sort of felt like this guillotine kind of hanging over the team and they would just keep winning a bunch of games where they would spend the majority of the game, not playing very well, and then pull out some fourth quarter heroics. And I always felt like for the last three years, their win loss record at the end of the season is better than their actual talent. And, and that's been exposed in the playoffs each season. So, you know, it's all coming home to roost right now. And, and personally for me, I'm I i do not want to be in the middle. I I've seen what championship looks like. And, and I don't want to just be good enough to win nine or 10 games and losing the first round of the playoffs anymore. I want whatever it looks like going forward to at least have the possibility of championship potential. And I, I, I don't see it with the current coaching staff and front office
0: right now it's splat. And I'm glad that you have that perspective. It's hard to remember that perspective. I'll admit, as someone who grew up a Patriots fan, I mean, sure. this 20 year run that they went on, I am so spoiled because of it. And it changes what you want every single year. But when you saw the Seahawks win a Super Bowl and then get to a Super Bowl the next season, your expectations are going to change. And when you're not able to meet that level again, and it's been five, six years. That's how you get the people, the very vocal minority on Twitter that are calling for the most part for Pete Carroll's head. I believe it was Michael Sean Dugar who put out a tweet that, Hey, if you can't win this game against the Cardinals without Deandre Hopkins, without Kyler Murray, then someone's head needs to, I guess, go on a spike. If we're talking about this era, I'm assuming that we are both of the opinion that the biggest end, the most likely end would be Pete Carroll's era as head coach of the Seahawks is going to be done probably at the end of the season. Is that your read? Because it feels like it's a move that would take a lot of balls to make, even if the Seahawks are playing like complete shit right now.
1: They are. They are playing like complete shit. And, and, you know, I think it is, you know, you, you, you said, it's a vocal minority, and I think that was the case for a long time. I I would say it's it's if not a majority, it's at least a decent uh, percentage of the constituency that is ready to move on from Pete Carroll. And I think that what gets lost in that conversation is okay. I'll I'll speak for myself. I would love to see Seattle move on from Pete Carroll. That is in no way an indictment of what he has accomplished with the Seahawks. He is. The single greatest, most accomplished sports or or coach in Seattle sports history. And me thinking that at 70 years old, he's not keeping up with the modern NFL and the rapidity with which it changes does not undo any of the greatness that he helped build. You know, I think for the last five, six years, most of Seattle's success is attributed to Russell Wilson in spite of a lot of the things that Pete does as a coach, but make no mistake. Them winning that Super Bowl by 35 points yeah. against the highest scoring offense in the history of the league is Pete Carroll. He deserves all the flowers for that Super Bowl. Russell Wilson helped the Seahawks win a Super Bowl, Pete Carroll's way. I don't think that Pete Carroll has helped Russell Wilson win Russell Wilson's way. So for me, I would love to see. I mean, okay, let me let me step back one step and say I don't. Think that there's a way Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll continue to coexist at a super high level beyond the season. I think that there was some real turmoil behind the scenes after last season. I think Russell Wilson is looking at Tom Brady and looking at Matt Stafford and looking around the league and seeing the top quarterbacks with coaches. Take uh, Herbert in San Diego, for example, take Jackson in Baltimore. Coaches that are truly empowering their quarterbacks, giving them the ability to change plays at the line, to go for it on fourth down, even if it's on like their own 41-yard line, to do these things. They're saying, you are our best player. We want the ball in your hands. Go win. And that's not what Seattle has been. And they run an offense that, yes, they have been more pass-heavy over the last couple of years, especially in neutral game situations but the types of passes that they're throwing or calling don't advance an offense very well. And by that, I mean, Pete Carroll is the defensive coach. He changed the way the NFL played defense. He is one of the most accomplished defensive coaches in the history of football. When he built the Legion of boom, the rest of the NFL took the next five or six years trying to dismantle and then replicate that. He is, so incredible in that he spent 40 years building a philosophy that ended up in national championships in college in a Super Bowl in the NFL. There's like, you can count on one hand, the number of people who have done that, but the NFL is the world's fastest learning organism. And you have to continue to evolve. And Russell Wilson has continued to evolve as a player. I think that Pete Carroll has regressed as a head coach. And as a result, we see them at an impasse. What I'm not sure about is with Paul Allen passing and Jody Allen, having been a pretty silent uh, owner in, in his wake, we don't really know what it is that she's going to do. From what I hear, she has had minimal interaction with Pete. And I think it was their very first face-to-face and maybe it's still their only face-to-face was to give him his big contract extension. It's hard for me to imagine her next conversation with him being Hey, it's time to move on. I think it's the right move. I just don't see it. The thing is, is if the franchise is in a position where they're choosing between Russ and Pete, if they choose the 70 year old admittedly hall of fame head coach over the 32 year old hall of fame quarterback, that is organizational malpractice. In my opinion,
0: someone's going to have to step. I would imagine on Jody Allen's foot to make it happen. Uh, it could be John Schneider because his contract is one year longer than that of Pete Carroll's. It could be Russell Wilson with more of his uh, Machiavellian <laughs> manipulation in the media this coming off season two. But I do think you're right in that it's it's not going to be so simple as just cutting a cord given not just the contract that Pete Carroll, I'm sure is getting paid. I'm I'm of the belief that he's one of the highest paid coaches in the NFL. It's going to be tough to to say, all right, well, we're going to be on the foot um, on the foot for all of this. And we're not going to have the guy in charge anymore. Plus his track record too, and how at the very least likable forward facing the guy is, it's going to be tough for that. Um, you mentioned regressing. I, I think that's a good way to evaluate it and, you know, lots of good times, but eventually those times stop working the same way that you want them to. I wouldn't, Point to in baseball, Terry Francona is my favorite manager ever of the Boston Red oh, Sox. Yeah, 2004, um, 2007, they win World Series. But 2011, at the end of the year, the clubhouse is just a different dynamic. They were kind of fat, happy, lazy, drinking beer, eating chicken wings was the big headlines that came out of it. And then Francona got smeared on his way out of town. That's when I stopped really liking the Red Sox that I used to, uh, the way that I used to. But eventually, great coaches are not going to have their message heard in the exact same way. But I want to go back to something you said also a little bit earlier and it had to do with Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson is the guy that you look at right now and you say he's a great quarterback, I want him going forward. But over the past calendar year something's wrong. And yeah. you could point to Brian Schottenheimer, you could point to Shane Waldron, you could point to Pete Carroll, you could point to the injury. Something's up. I don't know what it is, but it definitely has me at the very least second guessing Russell Wilson's overall place in the NFL among the best quarterbacks and whatever the hell's going on right now. I mean, I really hope it's injuries, but it feels like all of a sudden he's just hesitant and he can't see things downfield or that are right in front of him. And you just see the shot plays and the attempts to make the big plays all the time. And you're like, okay, well, what, 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 what is going on here? Why, why is the thing that you saw in training camp that I saw in training camp, the focus on trying to get the ball out quickly, what happened to that? Because it feels like it is completely gone right now.
1: No, it's such a good observation. And, and I think that unfortunately too much of the conversation about Russ versus Pete in terms of who is most important moving on. I mean, it's a shame it got to that point, but it was going to, at some point, how it works. Yeah, of course. Of course is, you know, and, and I think a lot of my commentary on this has sort of given Russ a pass on his performance he is Preston. there's there's no question this is a guy that is not used to being anything less than the absolute pinnacle of his profession um he's been the best player on 95 percent of the football fields he's been on since college and to all of a sudden not not be performing at that level has got to be really really hard now Keep in mind, yes, he really struggled down the stretch last year. And I do think a lot of that falls on the offenses from a schematic philosophical standpoint, their inability to counterpunch against single two high safety. But one thing that Russ does when things aren't clicking is he presses and he's pressing right now, but he has been really, really bad the last two weeks, easily the worst two week stretch of his career. But before he got hurt, he was the highest rated passer in the NFL. In fact, his passer rating was over 130 going into the game that he got injured, which is the highest would be the highest in NFL history had it gone for a whole season. He had 11 touchdown passes versus one interception and was dealing. I mean, he was playing like peak Russell Wilson. It appears that he is not ready to peak Russell Wilson physically. And and we're just seeing it. He's just he's, he's throwing the ball. Like he's got a shotgun in his hands instead of the sniper rifle that we're used to. It's just sort of like, it's going to go in this general direction, but it's lacking some of the the pinpoint accuracy that has made him so incredible. Um, I think the thing that's really tough is, and I'm glad you mentioned it is the fact that they're not building in these quick passes, these bailout passes underneath. You look at the top offenses in the NFL, the top passing offenses in the NFL, there's a safety valve on almost every pass play. And for Russ, it's just whether whether it's him refusing to look for it or Shane Waldron and company not able to scheme check down passes into it. It's why we're seeing so many bad sacks on third down, but. That brings me back to the whole offensive philosophy under Pete Carroll, which is to just move the ball little by little down the field. And doing that requires you to convert a lot of third downs. And the Seahawks have been really, really bad at third downs for six years now. Like this isn't a small sample size anymore. It's not something that is Russell Wilson's MO is to complete mid-range passes on third and seven, third and five, all of that stuff. But the offense is predicated on it. And the best offenses in the NFL aren't just great at third down. They avoid third down. And I'm not just talking about the past happy ones like Kansas City and Tampa Bay and Buffalo. I'm talking about Tennessee. I'm talking about the Ravens. I'm talking about the Niners when they're rolling and the Rams. These are teams that are trying to get first downs before third down. And Seattle's insistence on running two plays short of the sticks prior to third down makes it really, really tough. And that's how you end up with the lowest time of possession by like three minutes a game in the entire NFL. It's how you end up running the fewest plays in the NFL by a mile because you are the best leverage a defense has on any given possession is third down. That is when the stakes are weighted in the defense's favor the most. I mean, the best third down teams every year are completing, like, converting 45%, 48% of those. So even the very best, the Chiefs and the Bills, the Ravens, they're still failing on third down more often than not, which is why they do everything they can to avoid third down. Seattle invites third down, and it's been killing them.
0: Yeah, and without Chris Carson, you can't really give yourself those shorter situations, and it feels like they're not 100% sure that they want to even keep to the identity that they've had for the past decade, which is really weird. I mean, they're in, I think, a a massive identity crisis. Rashad Penny goes out the first carry of the game. He looks good, but he's injured. Alex Collins, I like what I've seen out of him this year, but I know that he's not Chris Carson. And now that Chris Carson's done for the season, yeah, I I don't know what they go back to, but I, I think you made a lot of good points there in that they do find themselves in these third and longs often. And when you have an offensive line that is, yeah, you know, you got to give Russ a little bit more time, and it, he feels it feels like he is seeing things slowly, and it's all adding up to a giant mess offensively. Here's something too that I think we both have to say. They're not going back to Geno Smith. They shouldn't go back to Geno Smith, even if Geno Smith is a better option any percentage of Russell Wilson that gives you a better chance to win than Geno Smith every single Sunday. I have no issues with them turning to Russ. I have no issues with Russ getting back out there. Maybe the secession trailer and the miracle stories, all that stuff. I could have done without it, but I mean, he has to be out there. Question is just how, if it's even possible, the rest of the way, can you do anything that makes this offense a little bit more um, efficient and and look, it's not like the Seahawks are the only offense that's having some of these issues. I don't know how many people watched the Chiefs and Cowboys game yesterday, but the Cowboys were running a lot of too high safety, and guess what? I mean Patrick Mahomes, they were able to move the ball in between the twenties. But there was a lot of dink and dunk going on and they didn't let anything beat them over the top. And really it was Tyree kill making you know all those quick plays that he's so good at that was getting Kansas City a lot of its yardage Buffalo struggling you just saw them loss uh, lose. So you know, we, we obviously see the Seahawks every single week. We focus on the Seahawks more than any other team. This is a problem across the league for some of these more pass heavy teams. And I I just think the problem is that the Seahawks have no choice, but to be pass heavy, given who they have personnel wise, you have Russ, you have Tyler Lockett, you have DK Metcalf, and you have solid tight ends. Otherwise, I don't know where you really can look at offensively and say we can build with this. We can succeed with this.
1: Yeah. And I think those are all really, really good points. And, and I want to, focus on the last point that you made which is about the roster I don't intrinsically have a problem with Pete's philosophy in the modern NFL there are plenty of teams that are having a lot of success running the ball really well and playing good defense and winning games it can be done thing is you have to have a roster that allows you to do that and roster construction has not mattered or 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 has not mirrored what Pete Carroll wants to do. And a lot of it is just missing on draft picks. Their their track record in the draft. You know, John Schneider, the Seahawks GM, came in and his first three drafts, you could mint them. And honestly, they might be, in terms of return on picks, the greatest three-year stretch that the NFL will ever see. Yeah. Since then, he's been pretty bad. And to cover for that, they've been making some big moves, trading picks for Percy Harvin trading first round picks for Jimmy Graham trading first round picks for Jamal Adams. And on the surface, I'm okay with all of that. I would rather have good players who are already established at being great in the NFL than draft picks that you hope someday become that. But in order to have the bird in the hand versus the two in the bush, you got to pay them. And to do that, to give up the draft capital to bring these guys in is one thing. To do that and then not have a plan that takes advantage of what makes them so great in the first place is what's really, really frustrating, mm-hmm. and I think as damning as anything else with this staff and with this front office. The trade for Jimmy Graham is great. You would just want a Super Bowl. You'd come one yard away from winning a second one. You need it. you had a bunch of small receivers. So you're like, yeah, let's go get the best big body receiver in the NFL. Great fucking trade. Great trade. Love it. But then they put his hand in the dirt 50% yeah, of the, the time, right which right. he had never done. They were asking him to get second level and block linebackers and to pick up, you know, edge rushers. That's it was not wrong. who Jimmy Graham is. Jimmy Graham basically sued the NFL to get paid like a wide receiver. Like he was saying, I am not a tight end. And they brought him in and tried to make him a Pete Carroll tight end. They bring in Jamal Adams. They got no plan for him. And like yeah. that, that's the disconnect. If you want to play Pete Carroll football, build a Pete Carroll roster. If you're going to build this roster, you can't play Pete Carroll football.
0: You want to make a comparison as far as having a plan. Look at what the Cowboys are doing with Micah Parsons. Micah oh Parsons, yes. they, they line him up everywhere. Uh, if you watch the chiefs game, he was lined up at right end the entirety of the game. He has two sacks. One of them is a strip sack, but you see him in other games. And he's lining up at middle linebacker. And I mean, look, Micah Parsons is an unbelievably talented player, but I think there are some similarities between Micah Parsons and Jamal Adams. They're explosive athletes. Micah Parsons is stronger. No doubt about that, but you're right. I mean, what's the plan to use him last year? They did have a plan this year. It feels like they are playing him either further back or something like that. And, and the impact that he had last year, you're still seeing it. I mean, I think the last two games, he's actually played pretty well.
1: He's, like, been a, he's been awesome the last month to be honest
0: people are going to look at that pass interference and maybe disagree but i i, I agree I, I think he has played pretty well over the past I month. Agree. the problem is the price that you paid for him and the lack of a plan that i totally agree with you on that is really hitting them in the face and now you just have to wonder personnel wise what you can't do anything in the middle of the year. I mean, trade deadlines passed and all of a sudden, you know, DJ Reed's injured, Trey Brown's injured DS grid. We never see him. Um, But it's, it's hard to think that they're going to be able to MacGyver their way towards something, not just down the stretch, but into next year too. I mean, last year should have been that time. And what are they building towards? You never want to say that, excuse me. You never want to ask that question about your team because as soon as you do that, that generally means you got to make a move in another direction.
1: Well, let's, let's talk about that. Right. I mean, okay. There's any, I mean, look, anytime you take a side on, there's a huge amount of the Seahawks fan base that just wants to see Pete and Russ forever. I mean, so do I, so do I I would love that. I would love that at some point we need to be honest about whether or not that really creates championship potential anymore. And I, I think those days are, are gone. So anytime you take a side on Pete versus Russ, you're going to get pushback from some people. And I've, I've been pretty vocal, both in my articles on the podcast and and on Twitter on taking Russ's side. And and I think Russ has a lot of culpability in the team's struggles this year, not in any other year, a few games each year, of course, just like any quarterback, but you know, Taken on aggregate, he has been the most important athlete Seattle has ever had. And you have to acquiesce to that. And if he and Pete Carroll are no longer going to be a championship caliber pairing, which I don't think they are, you have to pick a side. And if the goal is championships, if the goal is to hopefully win nine games every year and be like, hey, we're not the Lions, <laughs> keep them together. That's fine. But you know what? The Lions are the only team in the NFC that has a worse record than the Seahawks right now. Like it's going bad really quickly, but there's been a lot of pushback. You know, I've been pretty pro Russ in this situation. And, and I, like I said earlier, I, I think too often this argument gets framed in terms of culpability, who is more at fault. You can go round and round and round on that. Yeah. For me, it comes down to replaceability and you can just replace a coach of Pete's caliber a lot easier than you can replace a quarterback of Russ's caliber. The way that I'd put it is this. I still think Pete Carroll is a top 50% head coach in the NFL. And a lot of that has to do with the way he handles the offseason, how good he is at building and maintaining a program that is not lost on me at all. There is a good chance that the next head coach for the Seahawks will be worse than Pete Carroll. Oh, I, it's I a lock. Yeah, I mean, it is a stone cold guarantee that the next quarterback will be worse than Russell Wilson. Yep, there is not an available quarterback, certainly without first round picks that is going to come in and give you better than Russell Wilson. You can find a new head coach and honestly, impact on winning overall. It's just it's just more in the quarterback's hands. I mean, Mike McCarthy won a Super Bowl, but. Could you imagine if the Packers chose to keep McCarthy around when Rogers was basically like him or me, like, give me a break. That's ridiculous. And that's kind of the situation the Seahawks find themselves in. Yeah. They want a super bowl a long time ago, like the Packers did with McCarthy and Rogers. But when it came down to choose you choose the quarterback and that's just what you got to do. And the other argument is, yeah, well, Pete's salary doesn't count against the salary cap. That's true. Russ's does. It's way better if you've got a cheap quarterback who also happens to be great. But do you really trust Pete Carroll and John Schneider with an extra $40 million and a couple of first round picks to replicate the positive impact that just Russell Wilson has? Because I certainly don't.
0: I I do wonder about John Schneider's evaluation of quarterbacks because at the very least on the outside looking in and who knows how true any of this stuff is, but he seems to have been sniffing at the right quarterbacks leading into certain drafts. And that kind of think drew the ire of Russell Wilson. But as far as the Pete Carroll side of things, I think you're right now. I I do want to make this clear. I think that the next coach after Pete Carroll is also going to be a clear downgrade. I, I just think it's, it's natural. You have a guy in Pete Carroll who I think in times like this, this is when he gets shown as, as a guy that is not perfect. In times of crisis, the, hey, rah, 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 happy-go-lucky style doesn't work. Go back to his tenure with New England, 97, 98, 99. Chad Eden, I think, said in 1998, a defensive lineman that, uh, who's from Pialop that guys were trusted to take care of business, but some guys took advantage of it. And I'm not suggesting that's necessarily happening with the Seahawks. But I think in times like this, you really see that Pete Carroll's style, it, it, it's not – it's not supposed to be, he's not a wartime coach, I guess, if, if, if that makes sense. He can keep a raiding band of barbarians or whatever you want to call them, Vikings or pirates, like who've got big boisterous personalities. He can keep them all on the same page like he did in the early decade. But when things are going not so well, that, that positivity, I think, only goes so far. So I, I, I think we're both, though, of the belief that if you got to pick between the two, you pick the quarterback. I would take the quarterback, too. I guess the question is, how do you pick the next coach? Um, You have to find a way to make Russ want to stay here. And based off of the noise that we heard this past off season, there's a chance that he does not want to remain here, regardless of who the head coach is. Um, Mm -hmm. It it could be more than just a matter of he and Pete Carroll aren't compatible. So I guess, what do you do here? I think a is a dangerous game you got to find a good coach. That's also going to make the rest of the team better, but you still want this guy to be here. And it does feel like now he's going to have a little bit more input than he's had in years past. Should they go the route that we think they might this offseason and move on from Pete.
1: Yep. Yep. So what I'm going to say is probably going to make some folks upset and that's fine. I would, I would give Russell Wilson the keys to the next head coach. I, I would say, okay, we are choosing you. This is it. You burned it. You are the single most important athlete that the Seattle sports scene has ever had outside of maybe Ken Griffey Jr. Because Ken Griffey Jr. was the first athlete, certainly in my lifetime, that made Seattle sports relevant outside of the Pacific Northwest. But in terms of actual deliverables, we're talking about, Ken Griffey Jr. and Russell Wilson end a list in Seattle. Griffey's retired. He's in the Hall of Fame. It's Russ. This is Russ's city. And I would say, okay, you know what? You, We hear you. We hear you. Pete's gone. John's gone. We are going to incorporate you in this process. What do you need? And if it blows up, fine. That's great. Maybe you move on from all of it. And it's fine, but it's blowing up right now as it is. And I do not want a next year, 71 year old Pete Carroll rebuilding a program. I want a program to be rebuilt around Russell Wilson. And if that doesn't work out, then okay, you missed and it's fine. But you know what? If Russ walks, this team's going to be shitty, like really <laughs> shitty for a while. Right. You like, there's at least, there's at least a good chance that if you move on from Pete, that the team gets good again pretty quick. And you got to consider the downstream dominoes with moving on from Russ. What keeps DK Metcalf here? If Russ yeah, moves, money. What? At DK Metcalf <laughs> is less than 12 months away from being the coolest, like objectively coolest athlete in the NFL. The guy is doing everything right. He's going to be the highest paid wide receiver in NFL history. He's the man and he's being squandered right now. He loves Russ. He linked up with him. The second he got drafted, he's basically been living with the guy. And if you say, all right, you know what? It's not working out with Russ. We're going to move on. What's keeping DK Metcalf here? What? He's going to take some third round rookie quarterback or I don't know. I I honestly don't know what the quarterback situation looks like post Russ. And he's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to sign a four-year contract here with a Pete Carroll offensive philosophy and no quarterback. No way. He's gone. And so now if you're without Russ and DK, what do you got? Right. It seems like I, I can abide. It's, it, it's something that I, I tweeted yesterday. I have patience, obviously, for a team that is both good and exciting. And that's what Seattle was for a long time. I have patience for a team that is good, but boring. I even have patience for a team that is bad, but exciting. But I cannot abide a team that is bad and boring. And right now the Seahawks are bad and boring. And moving on from us basically entrenches their position in that realm. And so I would bounce if I was DK. So, I mean, I don't know. I just think the dominoes go to a really dark place. If you move on from Russell Wilson That's why I say, whether you feel a player should have this much influence or not, I think given the situation the Seahawks are in, you say, Russ, what do you want as a franchise? We're going to take one shot at building this the way you want to and see how it goes. We're gonna to have to talk again about all of this
0: soon. Jackson Bevins, Cigar Thoughts, read them. Cigar Thoughts, listen to them. Next time we talk, let's put together a list of people that we would like to put, perhaps, as candidates forward for the next head coach of the Seattle
1: Seahawks. Because I, 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 got, I, think- I got a half, do- I got a half dozen right now, man. I'd be happy to do that. In Ooh. fact, in fact, if you're listening, we'll save it. We'll save it in a couple of weeks. We're going to have Paul on the Cigar Thoughts podcast, and we're going to flip the script a little bit. We're going to get him in here. Let's, talk, let, let's chat about it then.
0: I like it. I like it. He is Jackson Bevins. Cigar Thoughts. Read them. Listen to them. Smoke it, I guess, too. I want a cigar now. It looks
1: awesome.
0: <laughs> You're drinking scotch. This is not cool. I, I, why wasn't I invited to this party? Thanks, Jackson. You're the best. <laughs> You're the best, bro. Appreciate you. My team's the Republican team. Go team! My team's the liberal team. Go liberals! <laughs> All right, guys, serious Paul time. I want to talk about Kyle Riddenhouse Put a lot of prep into this. I hope that you'll stick around with me. And this is not supposed to be something that is leaning one way or the other politically. This is just what I feel you should be taking away from the Kyle Ridenhouse case. The things that you should be mad about and the things that you should be ignoring. Now, I am not doing this as some sort of expert. And I'll fully admit when the coverage of... Kyle Rittenhouse and his case began, I knew nothing. I did no digging. I was on a self-imposed break from politics. Just Google chill dog, D-A-W-G. You'll know why. And this was less than a month later, August 25th, 2020. I know what I assumed though. And perhaps I'm part of the problem, at least my state of mind in this moment. I thought some white kid shot some protesters at a Black Lives Matter rally in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a rally in response to police shooting Jacob Blake. We're not going to talk about Jacob Blake. There were deaths. And given how angry people were online, I assumed that the victims were people of color. What else do I remember? I sure saw a lot of folks ranging from randos to actual journalists to the media networks we trust, even eventual President Joe Biden calling the guy a white supremacist. And I figured there was some sort of social media post that, that had been dug up from years ago, a picture of him doing something racially insensitive, at least some sort of evidence to actually back that up. But whatever, I didn't want to care about this. Stick to sports, Paul. You got a job talking about the Seattle Seahawks. But why was Kyle Rittenhouse called a white supremacist? So I went down a deep rabbit hole looking for real evidence of this over the past couple of days. Okay, his Facebook had Blue Lives Matter posts. He went to a Donald Trump rally and posted about it on TikTok. After the events of August 25th, 2020, he went to a bar, posed for photos with people who were supposedly proud boys. Maybe he saw a Facebook call to arms put out by a Kenosha Militia group, but I never saw any photos of him in a Ku Klux Klan hood swaggering down the street yelling, What power, the way that I figured I'd eventually find him, just given how much that word was thrown out there. White supremacist, racist. I mean, those are damning things to call someone in 2021. Now, all of those associations, which you could jump to a conclusion of On the jump to conclusions, Matt, that I just listed. Some of them might be founded. Some of them might be unfounded. But can you really say conclusively that Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist based on any of those details? Conclusively, beyond a reasonable doubt. Of course you can. That's the answer. After all, we live in the age of broad brush painting. You probably know at least one person who would see someone associated with any of the things that I just talked about. And that person would right away label this person with those despicable details about them a racist. So naturally, there was a lot of outrage on Friday online when possible racist Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted Friday of five felony charges. How do the whites keep getting away with this? But how much digging did you actually do? How much digging did your friend who was yelling at the internet actually do? And look, I'm not gonna blame anybody who doesn't actually know all the specifics of a case. We've got a million things to do these days and we've got short attention spans. We live in echo chambers too. How many of us are really on top of the details of an infamous trial? So I don't blame people for being ignorant. In an era where news media is not helping people be informed, and instead is exploiting a deep cultural divide, it's easy to start parroting things said by people that we actually think are acting in good faith, whether they be pundits, journalists, politicians, etc. I feel an obligation now, though, to inform because of these things that are happening these days. So, for those who are mad about the decision, I've got a question for you. What are you really mad about? Maybe you're mad about gun laws. And I know that is a very divisive subject across our country. I know my, my friends in Texas and my friends in Seattle, they're going to have very different opinions on gun laws. But you were told when it comes to Kyle Rittenhouse by credible news sources that Ridenhouse had crossed state lines with a rifle, that he was dropped off 20 miles from his hometown because he knew about a Black Lives Matter protest that might take place in Kenosha and that he was a minor illegally in possession of an assault rifle. These things were put out as fact and were considered fact for practically a year. No retractions, but none of those details were actually true. Rittenhouse picked up the gun from a friend's house. Legally purchased in Wisconsin. He drove himself 20 miles from Antioch, Illinois, where he lived with his mother, right on the border of Wisconsin, to Kenosha, where his father lives. It's a big city. It's about 100,000 people. And he was doing it to protect a store called Car Source after another location had been burned down during the protests or riots, whatever you want to call them. It's a little weird to ask for help from a 17-year-old, right? (laughs) But let's just focus on what we do know and the gun laws here. Even though the owners of Car Source denied requesting armed help under oath, one of their former employees under oath testified the opposite, along with multiple people who were asked to guard said store with weapons. When it comes to minors in possession of a dangerous weapon too, I don't think everyone knew the details of this. I think a lot of people hear the word assault rifle, you assume dangerous weapon. Well, actually, in Wisconsin, a dangerous weapon is... A shotgun or a rifle that's short-barreled. Kyle Rittenhouse's gun had the minimum barrel length. Even though he was 17 years old, he was allowed to possess that firearm. Other things you probably didn't know when it comes to gun laws that you might be frustrated about. Wisconsin is an open carry state. I'll be honest, I thought that was only something that took place in Texas or in the Southwest. But It is a state where you are allowed to use deadly force in self-defense on top of that. And prosecutors must disprove that you're acting in self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, you got to have some real serious proof to convict someone of shooting somebody in self-defense that it actually was a homicide. So what are you mad about? I don't think you could be mad about any of those things anymore unless you're just somebody that hates that guns are allowed to be held in the United States of America. And you know what? That's your right. Totally can believe that. But at least know the facts of this. By letter of the law, Kyle Rittenhouse didn't do anything illegal from a gun law perspective. Maybe you're mad because you heard that a white man killed a person of color and then was acquitted. But that didn't happen either. Joseph Rosenbaum, who Ridenhouse killed in self-defense, was white. A white man described as hyper-aggressive that night who had threatened to kill Rittenhouse twice earlier that night. A person who was being essentially disassociated with by those who were out there to protest what happened to Jacob Blake. A man who reached for Rittenhouse's rifle before being shot, that is Joseph Rosenbaum. You got a rifle, someone's reaching for it, what are you going to do? Probably going to shoot that guy in self-defense Rosenbaum, by the way, spent most of his life in jail for sexual conduct with five preteen boys and he'd just been in the hospital for a suicide attempt. He was bipolar. This isn't to minimize the life lost here, but we're talking about a person who acted aggressively and you can kind of see why he acted aggressively. Doesn't seem like he really had a whole lot to live for. You're not allowed to defend yourself from somebody because they're suffering a mental illness. It's a huge problem in this country. But that doesn't excuse what he had done before or what he did on this night. Anthony Huber, also a white person. Ridenhouse also killed him in self-defense. He chased down Kyle Rittenhouse as he ran and tried to hit him with a skateboard. Why? Who knows? Maybe he thought he was an active shooter or maybe he saw everyone else trying to take him out and thought to himself, I'm going to do it too. We don't know. He died. Rittenhouse shot him once. He collapsed. He died. Huber spent time in prison for violating probation after strangling his brother, for kicking his sister. He also was bipolar. I think compared to Rosenbaum, we're looking at somebody who wasn't going out of his way to be hyper-aggressive, but in that moment, he came after him and hit him with a skateboard. If Kyle Rittenhouse, if you're in his shoes and you're running from a mob that seems like they want to hurt you, I mean, what are you going to do when somebody actually attacks you with something? Gage Grosskreutz, he was armed with a pistol that night, is white as well. Ridenhouse shot him in the arm, also in self-defense. Now, Gage testified himself that he was pointing his weapon at Ridenhouse the moment that he was shot. Even though he claimed he wasn't intentionally pointing the weapon at Ridenhouse, I mean, you point a gun at somebody and you have a gun on you. Self-defense, if you're trying to protect yourself, you're probably going to shoot that guy back. There also was a man by the name of Maurice Freeland, known as Jump Kick Man. He was black. He ran at Rittenhouse and kicked him shortly after he had shot and killed Rosenbaum. Rittenhouse testified that he shot at Freeland and missed. But like Rosenbaum and Huber, Freeland also has a pretty long criminal record. The prosecution argued that these men were all trying to stop an active shooter and were provoked by Rittenhouse. But three of those guys, based on their criminal record, seemed like folks that it wouldn't take much to provoke. Three of the victims, the guys who were shot, were white. They were not people of color. Which is why it's so confusing that this Case has become one about race, at least in my opinion. Remove Jacob Blake from the story entirely. How does race become the center point of this because of the white supremacist label? And look, one of the interesting things about what we saw this past summer check that, in 2020, were a lot of violent protesters, firsthand. From me, a lot of these people who were being violent, destroying Starbucks, for example, these were white guys. And it's a shame. I mean, I take a look at the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it got radicalized along the way, but I understand what they were trying to demonstrate to everybody. Until all lives matter, black lives don't matter. And they have to change that. That was what they were trying to get across. Unfortunately, there's people at the top that radicalize it and make it really difficult for them to pull people that actually see things their way, excuse me, to pull neutral people into seeing things their way. Okay, so what are you mad about? Let's get back to that. Maybe, going back to race, you're mad because you think that this case would have been handled differently if Kyle Rittenhouse was a person of color. Because once he was acquitted, That's what all the heavy hitters on the left were saying. The ACLU, for example, claimed the events in Kenosha stemmed from deep roots of white supremacy and that the trial highlighted a need for reform for police and the legal system. It also called the violence in defense of white supremacy or in defense of himself, but no big deal. Uh, Wisconsin progressive representative Pramila Jayapal said, I'm heartbroken if we're ever going to tackle racial injustice in America We have to admit our justice system isn't working for black, brown, and indigenous people. Then we have to transform it. It won't be easy, but I'm committed to organizing alongside you to make it happen. This case involved no black, brown, or indigenous people. So why are you throwing that out there? To pander to your base? Maybe. Vice President Kamala Harris said, the verdict, said this of the verdict. As many of you know, I've spent a majority of my career working to make the criminal justice system more equitable, and clearly there is a lot more work to do. Well, we're talking about a justice system that is honoring self-defense, right? I feel like they took a pretty solid look at this, the defense, and realized that, yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. We have a pretty good case here. The prosecution, meanwhile, didn't have much of one. And then we have President Joe Biden, who an hour before said he had respected the jury's decision, later would say in a statement, well, the verdict in Kenosha will leave many Americans feeling angry and concerned, myself included. Okay, well, then you don't really respect the jury's decision. This was the overreaction after the fact. And it inflames all the people that probably felt that they knew exactly who Kyle Rittenhouse was, a white supremacist who... Went to a protest with the specific mindset of shooting protesters. And that's not what happened. There's so many racial conversations these days that are based in whataboutisms. Yeah, well, what would have happened if he was black? And I want to stop people like that from thinking that way. Let's focus on this specific case. Why can't we just focus on the things that actually happened or the things that you actually should be mad about? Because here's what you should be mad about. The casual labeling of people as white supremacists and racists. Ranging from media to the President of the United States. And by the way, listen to this comment from known white supremacist Kyle Rittenhouse during an interview Friday with Tucker Carlson. I support the BLM movement. I support peacefully demonstrating.
1: And I believe there needs to be change. I believe there's a lot of prosecutorial misconduct, not just in my case, but in other cases. And it's just amazing to see how how much a prosecutor can take advantage of somebody. Like, if they did this to me, imagine what they could have done to a person of color who doesn't
0: maybe have the resources I do or is not widely publicized like my case. That last part in particular. Does that sound like a white supremacist? Does that sound like a racist? I don't think so. And those points don't really apply here. We're talking about, again, self-defense. We're not talking about whether or not the justice system fairly represents both white people and people of color. You can have an issue with the justice system. It definitely does need some retinkering, retooling as Rittenhouse acknowledged towards the end here, but that's not what this case was ever about. What else should you be mad about coming out of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial prosecutor misconduct and bad lawyers. I saw clips of the prosecution of the Rittenhouse case. Thomas Binger, James Kraus, are their names And I was just blown away by how they operated. First off, they just seemed unprepared with their questioning. When we say your community, you mean
1: Kenosha? Yes. Again, you're from Antioch. You're not living in Kenosha at this time when this all happens, right? My dad lives in Kenosha.
0: Shouldn't the prosecution know that? Isn't that a really important detail to get before you start asking questions? To the defense? Maybe, but that's just me. They also came off as just incredibly naive when it comes to their notion of what self-defense actually is.
1: Everybody takes a beating sometimes, right? Sometimes you get in a, a scuffle and maybe you do get hurt a little bit. That doesn't mean you get to start plugging people with your full metal jacket AR-15 rounds and no bullets are not bullets.
0: That's James Krause there. Everyone takes a beating sometimes? Yeah, unless you defend yourself. As someone who's 2-4 and lifetime in fights, yeah, you do take beatings from time to time. But in a situation like that, this isn't a simple beating. This is, you might die. If you get tackled there, and all of a sudden the mob comes up to you and starts hitting you and pounding at you, That might be it, period. Here's Thomas Binger and his thoughts on self-defense. They have to
1: convince you that Joseph Rosenbaum was going to take that gun and use it on the defendant because they know you can't claim self-defense against an unarmed man like this. You lose the right to self-defense when you're the one who brought the gun. Okay. I mean,
0: as I said a little bit earlier, you're allowed to use deadly force in self-defense in Wisconsin. And prosecutors have to disprove your acting in self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. He got attacked. He shot someone. End of story. But Thomas Binger, the prosecution, clearly doesn't understand what self-defense is. James Krause also had a hot take on
1: self-defense. Why do you get to immediately just start shooting? As Mr. Binger said, he brought a gun to a fist fight. And he was too cowardly to use his own fist to fight his way out. He has to start shooting.
0: Yeah, that's what happens when you're about to be overtaken by a mob. What, he's supposed to punch his way out of that? I mean, one of the guys had a gun. Rosenbaum clearly was unhinged. He got hit in the head with a skateboard. He had a guy jump from above and kick him. You're supposed to punch your way out of that. And you're a coward if you don't. Okay. So, at the very least, the prosecution was unprepared or incredibly naive. Maybe they're incompetent. They were just missing all sorts of details that you would think were simply google But maybe they're also acting in bad faith. After all, they were found to be deliberately hiding evidence from the defense on multiple occasions, like a higher quality drone video, the identity of jump kick man. And then listen to this attempt to minimize the hyperactive activities of Joseph Rosenbaum, who clearly was not protesting on this night. So what does he do that night?
1: Oh, let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bearcats and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. You're minimizing
0: a series of actions by a person that was, again, unhinged, who also attacked the person acting in self-defense. And that, to me, is bad faith. You're just minimizing all of those things. What normal person does any of those things? What normal person does any of those things and gets away with it? Without getting a misdemeanor, at the very least, if not more. No one. But on this night, it was a little bit different. So it just concerns me that whether you've got lawyers who are incompetent or operating in bad faith, that this is something that takes place across the country. These are terrifying things to hear coming out of lawyers' mouths. Again, they're idiots. They're incompetent or they're acting in bad faith. I don't know what I'd rather have, but if that's the prosecution coming after me, how can I feel good about a legal system if I don't have the means to protect myself? If I'm somebody who has to be represented by a lawyer, by the state, how am I feeling there? And and maybe this gets back to the conversation about, (laughs) that some people are mad about, about You know, our legal system here, but ironically, the prosecution are the ones highlighting the issues of the legal system, not Kyle Rittenhouse's defense team. This reminded me of something else that took place in Wisconsin. I don't know how many of you guys saw the television show Making a Murderer on Netflix. It's a documentary, sort of like the podcast serial, that was very slanted in favor of alleged murderer Stephen Avery in fact, convicted murderer. But my biggest takeaway from that had nothing to do with Stephen Avery and the way that the trial was covered, where it clearly was favoring the defense. It reminded me of the prosecutor, Ken Kratz. He seemed like a terrible lawyer, either incompetent or acting in bad faith. Imagine a lawyer that opens his closing arguments up with this.
1: Reasonable doubts are for innocent people.
0: (laughs) I mean, reasonable doubt is the highest standard of proof that must be exceeded to secure a guilty verdict. It is the entire basis of law in the United States. But Ken Kratz says it's just for the innocent. (laughs) I mean, holy crap. How do you feel good about your legal system when you got prosecutors representing the state like Ken Kratz? like Thomas Binger, like James Krause. By the way, moments later, Ken Kratz, in this Making a Murderer episode, it's episode eight of the first season of the series. He responds to the defense, explaining that maybe police would plant evidence to ensure a conviction of somebody that they legitimately believe to be guilty. Kratz said that the defense... He said this to the jury, the defense was arguing that the police officers that may have planted evidence actually killed the victim too. Operating entirely in bad faith and misrepresenting what the people arguing against him was saying as opposed to taking on the argument head on. Now, maybe this is a Wisconsin thing. If you study law in Wisconsin at the two accredited law schools there, Marquette, UW, you don't have to sit for a bar exam. Or maybe this is a lawyers everywhere thing, which is a lot more concerning. And that has me wondering about our legal system and prosecutors in general. So that's something I'm mad about. Prosecutors, I'm mad about that. And I'm, I'm mad about also misrepresentation by the media. Journalism really screwed the pooch here. As Kyle Rittenhouse laid out during that interview he did with Tucker Carlson. He crossed state lines, false.
1: He's a white supremacist, false. None of that is true. And the lies that they can just get away with spreading is just sickening. And it's a disgrace to this, poverty, to this country.
0: For a case so deep, the fact-finding was extremely lazy. News networks were pushing the idea that he crossed state lines with a gun until very recently. And that's wrong. They consciously hid the races and identities of those shot. I think that if people knew that it was three white people that had been shot, as opposed to three black people at a Black Lives Matter protest, that we would react a little bit differently to this, and maybe hear out the idea of self-defense. Or if we knew that there were protesters at protesters at rallies across the country, white people who were acting violently and smashing things and defacing property and things like that, I, I, I think that we maybe would have looked at this case a little bit differently. The lowest of low moments came last week when an MSNBC reporter followed a jury bus and may have been trying to photograph jurors. In a case of this magnitude, imagine a juror having his or her identity revealed to the world, one way or the other. The right or the left are going to come after you if they knew who you were. You don't want that. The last part that you should be mad about coming out of the Kyle Rittenhouse case. The labeling of him as a white supremacist. The prosecutorial misconduct. And the way that the media covered this. The last part saddens me. A complete failure by news media. I cover sports. My job, the job of many self-important colleagues of mine is stupid. It's not a real job, but I've always had incredible respect for people who actually cover the news. I assumed they put in the kind of work that I did for this story into every single thing they report on. Because for Kyle Rittenhouse, the entire rest of his life was at stake. Whether innocent or guilty, you're obligated as news media to make the public aware of the truth and not to tell people what they want to hear. And clearly that didn't happen. That doesn't happen. So what do I do? Because all of a sudden I'm finding I'm more passionate. Explaining the truth to people than talking about why someone screwed up in a sports ball game. Given the laziness out there from politicians and the media, maybe this is the battle I've got to take up. I want to thank you for listening to this if you actually did sit through the entirety of it, but these are the things that I feel like we actually have to all agree on coming out of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, the things that we actually should be mad about. And the last part is really concerning. Big thanks to everybody who tuned into today's late edition of the Gallant Says Podcast. I really appreciate everybody, especially who took the time to listen to the second half of it. I put a lot of effort into it. I hope that it sounds like I put a lot of effort into it. And while I know that I am sometimes out of my breath talking about, breath? Breath? I don't know. Talking about politics. It's something that I really do care about. And I do feel like the coverage of this entire situation and the prosecution that took place in it It wasn't a good look for anybody, and I'm a little nervous about both of those things going forward. Hopefully they're a learning experience for our whole country. Going forward. Jesus, I sound like some sort of wannabe patriot right now. Big thanks to everybody who tuned in. Again, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate, review it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. You can also leave a comment on YouTube. You can call in, too, if you want to on the Gallant Says voicemail. We are so modern. 781-452-4322. 781-452-4322. you leave a voicemail. We will play it. I will respond to it. Guys. Step your game up. Haven't heard from any of you. You could also send in an email to says at gmail.com. Ditto on that front if you want to talk to the show. Come on, we want to be interactive like we used to be. So long. Farewell. We will have a Black Friday episode of the Says podcast later this week. I hope you guys have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'm fucking stuck here because I got COVID-19. A breakthrough case despite me being vaccinated and getting the booster shot. Fuck my life, right? <laughs> So I've got nothing better to do. Podcast coming on Friday. Again, have a great holiday. Hope you have a great time with your family. Stay safe, all that shit. And you'll hear me on Friday. So long. Farewell. Take it easy.